Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Good evening and welcome to our Conversation with the Candidate series. I'm Adam Sexton and our guest this evening is Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Tonight we'll be getting to know Congressman Moulton and where he stands on key issues. At the start of the show, I'll be asking the candidate some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Seth Moulton was born in Salem, Massachusetts in 1978. He graduated from Phillips Academy in Andover before getting a bachelor's degree from Harvard University. Right after graduating in 2001 and just months before the 9-11 attacks, Moulton joined the Marines. He led an infantry platoon and was among the first Americans to reach Baghdad in 2003. He served four tours in that war and was awarded the Bronze Star for his actions during the 2004 Battle of Najaf. When he came home from Iraq, he got both an MBA and a master's in public policy from Harvard. Moulton then worked in Texas on the country's first high-speed rail line, but returned to Massachusetts, where he ran for and won a seat in Congress in 2014, being re-elected in 2016 and 18. Representative Moulton is a member of the Budget Committee. He sits on the House Armed Services Committee and is the top Democrat on the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee. He's married, has a daughter, and lives in Salem, Mass. Congressman Moulton, thanks for joining us on Conversation with the Candidate. Adam, it's great to be here. So it's a field of nearly 20 now. Yes. What sets you apart from the PAC? Well, first of all, my background's a little bit different. Um, my experience uh, leading Americans in some of the most difficult circumstances on earth and bringing them together behind a common mission to serve the country. I think that kind of leadership is exactly what we need from the next president during an incredibly divisive time in American history. The second thing is I'm going to be talking about issues that a lot of Democrats don't seem to want to talk about, but that we ha where we have to confront Donald Trump. National security, what it means to make this country safe and strong. Fundamentally, what serving the country means and what it feels like to be, what it means to be a patriot. For too long, I think that the Democratic Party has ceded these issues to Republicans, and they're actually where Donald Trump is weakest. We need to confront him on his record, not just as president, but as commander-in-chief. To that end, ISIS is claiming responsibility for an attack in Sri Lanka that killed more than 300 people. We have so many problems, foreign and domestic, but do you believe we've taken our eye off the ball when it comes to international terrorism? Well, I think the biggest thing we've done is we've abandoned our allies around the globe. And you stop international terrorism by having good coordinated intelligence among your trusted allies. But what has Trump done? He's disparaged our allies left and right. He's made fun of the Australian prime minister. Uh, he's disparaged NATO. Uh, the alliance feels like it's falling apart. And what we should be doing is actually strengthening those alliances. I've called for a Pacific NATO to help contain North Korea and China. Uh, I've called for us following the motto of my Marine Division, which was no better friend, no worse enemy than the United States of America. That means we stand with our allies. We make our countries stronger and safer together. And it also means we stand up to our enemies. So that doesn't mean cozying up to Putin. It doesn't mean cozying up to Kim Jong-un like, like Trump has been doing. It means confronting them on the international stage and leading with moral authority like we always used to in America. You've been very critical of the war on Iraq as an Iraq war veteran. But as President Moulton, what would the threshold be for going to war? our national security interests. We only go to war if it's in our national security interest because the most solemn 
duty that a president or frankly the Congress has is to decide when to put young American lives on the line. Congress has abrogated this role in the last several years because we're still operating under the authority, the authorization for the use of military force that was passed just after 9-11. So the first thing I would do as, as president is say to Congress, we are going to rescind that authority and pass a new one based on the conditions today so that we have a transparent debate before the American people to justify why we're putting young men and women in, in harm's way. Do you think that if Congress has given back some more of that power, obviously the power of the purse is there and they've chosen not to use it, but that they would exercise it responsibly, that the president's hands wouldn't be tied militarily? Well, the fact of the matter is that it's the constitutional responsibility of the Congress to exercise that authority. And it's the leadership responsibility of the president to work with Congress to get done what we need to do to keep our nation safe. You talk about putting young lives at risk. Do you believe that women should be able to sign up or should sign up for the draft when they turn 18 just like men do? I, I do, actually. Now, that's a, hard, that's a hard vote that we took on the Armed Services Committee because there was a lot of concern about that. But the fact of the matter is that women are serving bravely and honorably uh, in our armed services today. Uh, I did two tours as a platoon commander in Iraq. And the second two tours, I had a small team of Marines. Uh, we went out and did special projects for General Petraeus. And my first teammate was a woman. We were a stronger, more effective team. We were more combat effective because she was a part of our team. In fact, she enabled us to be able to talk to half the Iraqi population that we wouldn't even be able to work with. Um, Iraq is a very, you know, essentially sexist society, right? And men talk to men and women talk to women. We couldn't even talk to Iraqi woman, women if Anne wasn't on our team. So I've seen what women can do in combat. And, and frankly, um, they're given that opportunity. I know a lot of women who feel that um, they should have the responsibility of being part of the draft as well. Youth is a big theme in this campaign and in this Democratic race, and you're on the younger end of the spectrum of candidates. Would it be a mistake for the Democrats to nominate an older candidate in 2020? We have to nominate the best person to take on Donald Trump. That's the most important thing. I hear it from Democrats across this country. It's the most important priority. I think it's the most important priority because we have such a reckless commander-in-chief. Uh, having Donald Trump in the Oval Office uh, is a danger every single day, not just because of the ways that he's taking apart our democracy here at home, but because of the ways that he is literally putting us at danger or in danger around the globe. Playing, I mean, the fact that he is tweeting with a dictator on his, with his finger on the nuclear button in North Korea is a, it's just one example of the danger that he puts us in as commander-in-chief. So we have got to get rid of Donald Trump, and that means selecting as Democrats whoever is best positioned to take him on. Congressman Moulton, thank you for asking or answering these questions. Even harder ones await, though. Coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to our conversation with the candidate and tonight's guest, Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. We're going to bring in our live town hall audience now of crack New Hampshire voters with all the best questions. And we're going to start with Kathy Hoy. Hi, Congressman. Welcome to New Hampshire. Kathy, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, my question is about, can you tell us your current thoughts on the Mueller investigation and report? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, thank you for, for asking the question. It's on the minds of a lot of Americans. 
And it's something that we really need to be, be talking about as a country because this is really serious stuff. A decorated American veteran, actually a Republican, just like Trump, uh, conducted exhaustive research, thousands of subpoenas, talked to an awful lot of people to determine whether or not the sitting president of the United States committed crimes, potentially crimes for which he should be impeached. But the first unmistakable conclusion of this report is that Russia interfered in our 2016 election. And if for anybody who's been paying attention, we've done almost nothing to prevent it from happening again. So standing here tonight, as we're having this conversation, we better assume the Russians are, walked, are watching. They will be interfering in this election in 2020 if they haven't already. This is a national security concern for the United States of America. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're the staunchest Trump supporter or someone who hates the president's guts, you should be concerned that a foreign par power, the greatest adversary that we've ever had, is trying to fundamentally undermine our democracy. So what does this mean we should do? We need to actually step up to Russia. Rather than cozying up to Vladimir Putin like Trump is doing, we need to confront Russia, and that means confronting them by stopping what they're doing on the internet to undermine our elections. Second, we need to have a debate in Congress about whether the, the president should be impeached. And I called for this a year ago when I voted to move forward with the debate on impeachment. Now, this doesn't mean that I think we should have a vote today. We don't even have all the facts yet because the full Mueller report hasn't even been released. But we need to have that debate because it's clearly evident the president has committed enormous clear crimes. Now, whether they're impeachable offenses or not, that's for us to determine. But over 30 of his associates, close associates, have been indicted. His campaign chairman is in prison today. So don't tell me there's not enough to talk about when it comes to impeaching the president. So that's why I called for impeachment discussions over a year ago, when frankly the majority of my party was against that. I think it's been a mistake to wait this long, but we have a constitutional responsibility in Congress as a check on the executive to have this debate, and we should be having it today. Thank you very much. Thanks for your question. Thank you, Kathy. Quick follow-up, do you believe the Attorney General has behaved responsibly in regards to this report? No, the Attorney General's job is to be the top law enforcement officer in the country, to enforce the laws not to be a press operative, a spokesman for the president. Not to get out there and give some you know, cover for what the president has done, but to actually set an example for enforcing the laws that all of us, whether you're sitting here tonight, you're watching at home, whether you're running for president or you are the sitting president, the laws that all of us have to follow. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill of Manchester. Hi. How are you? Fine, thank you. Uh, you are in the top 10% for bipartisan voting. Um, has this created a problem with the Speaker of the House? And if you were President, would she work with you? Oh, absolutely. We work together. I mean, we've had our differences in the past. Um, and, and I'm glad to ha that we, ha we have had this debate because we have made some good progress by having this debate. We have term limits now on leadership, so this new generation of leaders can have a voice in our politics. Uh, we have got the climate change subcommittee, the voting rights subcommittee as a result of that debate. But there's a time to vote for captain, and then there's a time to play on the same team. And that's why I'm proud to work with Speaker Pelosi, and I'd be proud to work with her uh, as the president. But it's important that we have a president, uh, presidential nominee to take on Trump who's proven that he or she is willing to stand up to the Washington establishment. Because everywhere I go, people are saying, we need to change Washington. That, that Washington as it is, 
uh, isn't getting the job done. But I also want to address what you started the question with, which is just about my bipartisan record. I'm proud of that. You know, there seems to be so much division in our politics that it's almost if, you know, you're a Democrat, you're expected to be so partisan that you never work with Republicans. But you can't get anything done if, you don't, if you're not willing to work across the aisle. So I'm proud of the fact that I've passed several bipartisan bills, including the first bill I passed to, to, make, uh, uh, to make it easier for veterans to get care at the VA. And that bill would never have gotten through the Congress, through not only the House, but the Senate as well, and signed into law by the President, if I hadn't been able to work with Republicans to get it done. When, when I ran for Congress in 2014, I had a lot of conversations like this with voters like you. But I think the single most memorable was with a United States Navy veteran from World War II. He fought in the Pacific, and I came up to him at a little diner um, just south of the border in Massachusetts. And I said, hey, I'm a veteran and I'm running for Congress. And he looked at me and it was immediately apparent that he was not very impressed. <laughs> I think he'd seen a lot of people running for <laughs> politics before. Um, but, he, but he had one piece of advice. He said, Seth, if you win this race, go to Washington as an American. Not as a Democrat or as a Republican, but as an American first. And that's the kind of representative I've tried to be every single day. And that's the kind of president I will be if I'm fortunate enough fortunate enough to get elected. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carolyn. Next question is from social media. It comes from Scott Godzik. He asks, will you stand up against socialism? Uh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I'm a Democrat. I'm not a socialist. Um, it's kind of amazing to me that we have that question now uh, in, in our party. Um, but we are a democratic country. We're a democratic republic, to be exact. And we're not a socialist country. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some things that socialist countries have. Like, for example, everybody should have health care. Everybody should have access to health care, period. That's something that a lot of countries have. We can have it here, but we don't have to become a socialist country to get it. And so I'm very proud to be a Democrat. I'm proud to believe in the free market. We've got to make sure it's regulated and everybody pays their, pays their fair share. Uh, but I believe in the capitalist system. It's made us strong for over two centuries, and it will continue making us strong in the future. Have the Democrats moved too far to the left, though, do you believe? Look, if we're going to be the majority party, we've got to have the majority of, of ideas out there. So I think it's wonderful that people are talking about ideas on this end of the spectrum and ideas on that end of the spectrum. Um, but ultimately, uh, we have to represent the majority of Americans, and we have to stay close to what makes America strong and always has. Joan Wentworth has the next question. Good evening, Congressman. Good evening. What role, if any, do you believe the federal government should play in establishing regulations regarding vaccinating children against highly communicable and potentially deadly diseases? And to what extent do you believe philosophical and or religious exemptions should be allowed? Wow. This is, this is a good question. And it's, I know how controversial it is mm -hmm. because I have a six-month-old daughter. And so... Um, Yes, someone has asked me, are you, know, are, you, are you getting her vaccinated? And the answer is absolutely. I believe in science uh, and vaccines work. And that's, that's clearly what the science says. Um, so I think it's dangerous to have a lot of kids out there who are not getting uh, their vaccines when there's really no science to, to support it. Now, religious exemptions are always tough um, because we, we honor religious freedom and we honor the separation of, of church and state. But the problem is that when religious exemptions put kids at risk, whether it's because they're not getting the vaccines they need to, to stay disease-free, or whether 
it's because they're not getting those vaccines, they put other kids at risk in their kindergarten or whatever else, um, then that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real problem. So that gets to the heart of the question, which is that we have religious exemptions for a lot of things. But if vaccines become a public safety concern, which I think they are, um, then that's a place where you know, we'd have to have very, very uh, narrow religious exceptions, if any. I think kids should get vaccinated because it's a safe thing to do, not only for kids, but for their communities. Now, I'll tell you, um, Emmy, my daughter, um, got her six-month vaccines last week. And I hated it. It is so painful to watch your poor daughter get stuck with these. My, life, my wife leaves the room. We always take her to the doctor together. She's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And, um, and so I there, I, I like stand to the back of the room so she doesn't see me connected with, you know, it's the doctor who's giving these things, not Seth, right? Not dad. Um, and then I rush in and, and, and pick her up and hold her and, you know, give her a bottle right away. Um, it, it's literally painful to watch but it's making her healthier and safer. And that's why we have rules around public, you know, public health in America. And I think this is a public health concern. Thank you very much. But thanks, that was a good opportunity to sort of talk it out and think it through. Yep. Thank you. All right, next question comes from Robert Plourd. Hi, how first you, of all, I'd like to thank you for your service on behalf of our country. Thank you. Uh, there's too few candidates, I believe, that have that um, qualification uh, for serving our country. So thank you very much for that. Uh, my question is, since there's already a term limit of two terms for the office of president, would you support term limits for a member of Congress? And if so, what would those limits you propose? And if not, why? You know, term limits for members of Congress is a very controversial idea. But at the end of the day, I think it would probably make Congress better. Because if you went to Congress knowing that you had a certain period of time to get things done and to do the right thing for the country, and that was going to be your legacy, not just how many times you could get reelected, then maybe you would make better decisions. You know, there's this sort of perception we have about presidents, which is that they always do their best work in their second term because they're not worried about getting reelected. They're just trying to do the right thing for the country. Well, maybe if we had term limits on Congress, that would help as well. Now, I know that I'm going to make a lot of members of Congress, my colleagues, upset um, by saying this. But the fact of the matter is that Congress isn't working right now. I mean, how many of you think that Congress is just knocking it out of the park, like just totally killing it, right? No, right? No, it's not. Um, when I got elected, one of the first things I did is I brought in as a chief of staff a, a, a startup executive because I was like, we need to totally rethink this. You know, I got this little handbook about this is the way that you do, the, do Congress the way everybody else does Congress. I'm like, why would I want to do Congress the way I want everybody else is doing Congress? So we need to change. We need to change the system. Um, Maybe term limits won't be necessary if we make some other reforms, but it's something that absolutely should be on the table because I think it would make Congress stronger and better. And it would remind members of Congress that they're there to do what's right for the country, not what's right for their reelection. Thank you. A specific Thanks. limit on terms though, a number? Oh, you know, this has been thrown around a lot. Um, uh, people have talked about three or four um, terms for uh, members of the House, but actually what I think would really make sense is to lengthen the terms so right now, members of the House have to get reelected every two years. That means that what do you do on election day? You start campaigning. You literally start campaigning, start raising money for your next reelection. I mean, there are people who are in tough districts who their opponent announces before they're even reelected, right? And so I think it would make sense to lengthen the terms from two years to four years, 
but then set a limit of just three or four terms. The reason we had two-year term limits was because back in the day, when it took a couple weeks to get to Washington from some parts of the country, they said, well, we want to make sure representatives check in with their districts at least once every two years. So that's just not an issue anymore. So there are times when we need to sort of evolve with the time, evolve with the times, and I think this is one of them. Thanks. Thank you, Robert. Another social media question coming in, this one from Scott Catogio, who asks, why spend time running for president instead of working for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I would assume? That's a, yeah. that's a great question. It's a very fair question. Um, I'm running for president because I believe the best way that I can serve the country right now is by taking on the most divisive president in American history and working to bring the, president, bring the country back together again. There's a lot of good work to do in the Commonwealth. But the existential threat to America right now is the man in the Oval Office. And I'm going to talk about issues on this campaign trail that a lot of other Democrats that almost really no one else in the race is talking about right now. Issues like national security. Issues like national service. Issues like what it means to be a patriot. For too long, Democrats have ceded these issues to Republicans, and they're actually where Donald Trump is weakest. I'm going to take on Donald Trump on the job he is doing, not just as president, but as commander-in-chief the ways that he is putting us in danger around the world, and talk about how I, as president, and we as Democrats can make our country stronger and safer, both here at home and as a moral authority for the world like we always used to be. Next question comes from Clara Monier. <laughs> Welcome. How are you? Thank you. Uh, with Social Security running into some fiscal problems by 2035, do you have any ideas on how to solve this crisis? Yes, absolutely. Um, my colleague John Larson has a bill I've signed on to uh, that will make some changes to Social Security to make it last much longer. One of the things we will do is raise the cap because right now, uh, I think most of you know that after a certain income level, you don't contribute any more to Social Security. So, you know, if you make $500,000 and you make a billion dollars a year, you contribute the same amount. That doesn't strike me as really fair. I get the argument behind it, but it's not fair. We actually used to have a cap on Medicare. We raised that cap before. We should raise the cap on Social Security. That'll take care, about, that'll take care of about 80% of the problem. Um, this bill would also slightly raise the payroll deduction tax to make the program sustainable. I think it goes from like um, 12 to 14% or something. I don't remember the exact number, but it makes the program sustainable well into the future. You're getting, are you getting Social Security now? Yes, I am. <laughs> We've got to make sure you continue to get Social Security. But I think that I should get Social Security too. I think that folks in my generation should have Social Security around for them. And I want my six-month-old daughter to have Social Security around for her too. So we've got to make some minor changes to the program today. Not big changes, by the way. Raising the cap, that's not going to affect you or me. Uh, adjusting the payroll tax just a little bit, that's okay. We can make these changes today to make sure that Social Security is there for generations to come. Thank you. That's very thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you, Clara. Uh, question for you. You're a veteran. What's your plan for fixing the VA? So first of all, you should know that I'm not only a veteran, but as a member of Congress, I continue to get my health care at the VA. I made a commitment when I got elected to not get the congressional health care plan, but to continue going to the VA like all the Marines I served with. And I'll tell you, it's been a mixed experience. I believe that veterans should get the best health care in the world, period. And we're not getting it right now at the VA, despite Donald Trump's promises 
that he was going to fix it. The first time I had to get surgery um, was actually just a few years ago um, uh, after I was elected. I got a hernia and I had to go in for, uh, uh, for surgery at the VA in Washington. And I went in and checked in, um, gave them my social security number and my name, and they looked at their database, which is supposed to be all coordinated and everything. And after about 20 minutes, they looked at me and they said, well, Mr. Moulton, we can't confirm that you're a veteran, so we'll consider taking you as a humanitarian case. I wanted to say, you know, Google me. I just gotten elected, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to use, I'm just not there as a congressman. I was there as a veteran. And, um, and so I sat down in the waiting room to wait. And I sat down next to a gentleman. He was a Vietnam veteran who said, well, I've been waiting here for five hours. Five hours. Fast forward to the next day when I got my surgery. The surgeon was great. She was from GW. Um, she volunteered at the VA because she wanted to serve veterans, which is a great example of the fact that there are really good people who are working at the VA and trying to make it better. But as I was going under uh, anesthesia, she said, yeah, you know, I don't really trust some of these nurses in here. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, maybe, maybe we should. But I was out. Luckily, I woke up. And when I woke up, the surgeon had done a great job. Um, she said, uh, you're going to get a prescription from the pharmacy and uh, a couple painkillers. You'll probably need to take two pills, but you can try just taking one. I went back to Capitol Hill that afternoon with my bag of pills and I didn't take any because we had votes and I wanted to remember how I voted. Um, but then at the end of the day, the anesthesia was wearing off and it was getting really sore. So I took a pill and it didn't, I know you're rushing me. No, it no. Didn't, it didn't make... We, we'll be able to continue this conversation online and on our mobile app. We do have to end it in the TV portion. Congressman Wilton, thank you. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly! 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. We actually had a cliffhanger at the end of the TV portion of this. Congressman Seth Moulton had just undergone surgery as a veteran, uh, and he was explaining what had happened after he had been prescribed some pills by the VA. So, Congressman, sorry for interrupting you at the end of the TV broadcast. Not at all, not but at all. Not take at all. it from it's there. It's great to be back. Yeah. Thank you. So I had the pills. I had the pills, and, and, and I took one of them, and it didn't seem to make a difference, so I went back to have a second, and I looked at the bottle, and I realized that although they had prescribed me a powerful painkiller, they sent me home with Advil. By that point, they had even figured out that I was a member of Congress getting surgery at the VA, and they still, still couldn't manage to, give, to send me home with the right medicines. So if that's the treatment that a member of Congress is getting, think about the treatment for other veterans. We've got to fix the VA. We've got to fix the VA. And, and here's another thing about this. I think I'm the only candidate in this race who gets single-payer health care because I go to the VA. And that's why I don't like the idea of forcing everybody onto a single-payer plan if you have a private plan that you actually like. Now, many of the other candidates are saying that that's what they would do. But I don't think that's right because I get single-payer health care and it isn't perfect. So we've got to work to fix the VA. We've got to make this uh, better for veterans. But we should also learn some lessons about the VA when it comes to designing a health care plan that will give everybody access to affordable health care in America. And following up on that quickly, some of your fellow Marines have also had issues. Describe what you've heard from fellow platoon members. Um, so, I, I mean, I'll tell a story that's, um, that's kind of hard to tell, but, um, you know, I've lost two Marines from my second platoon since we've been back. 
And the second was, um, they're both heroes. Um, the second was uh, a real hero in Najaf when we were there. His name was James Hassel from, from Alabama. And uh, when another kid from Vermont, actually, from St. Johnsbury, um, was hit by a grenade in a building that we were in, uh, James put him on his back and carried him out through like, withering machine gun fire to safety. Saved his life. Now, when James got back from the war, he wanted to find that same sense of purpose in his work back here at home. So he went to nursing school so that he could work in an ER and save lives every single day. And he did. And he did well in school and he got a good job. But look, he'd been through a lot. I mean, just the story I told you is a lot. And so he went to the VA to get counseling. But instead of giving him a counselor to talk to, the VA just prescribed him drugs. And this is a story I've heard from so many veterans because the VA doesn't have enough mental health care professionals. They just send veterans home with prescriptions. And at the age of 30, James died of a heart attack just from taking the drugs prescribed to him by the VA. The first time that his father got on a plane in his entire life was to go to his son's funeral. James is an American hero. And he's such a hero that doing what he did in Iraq wasn't enough. He came home and wanted to save lives every single day. He's the best of America, and we completely let him down. So we got to fix this. And I guarantee you, if I'm the next president, we're going to put an end to stories like James's. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Such an emotional story. I almost I forgot Dan's name. I, Holy cow. I don't, how do I follow right. that? But, you know, thank you once again for your distinguished service and that Thanks. of James as well. Uh, I asked this question as a school board member in Manchester. We're the largest public school district in the state. So uh, what would an education funding look like in a Moulton administration? And if you could sort of tie that to local districts here in New Hampshire and Great I guess question. nationwide. So, Great you. question. So we clearly need to invest a lot more in education. <clears throat> It's the single best investment we can make in the future of the country. And we're literally investing in the future of the country when we invest in education. But I think where I differ from some other Democrats is I don't want to just continue funding the system exactly as it is. Why? Because the world is changing. The economy is changing. And we've got to evolve our education system to meet it. When, the, when we had the Industrial Revolution over 100 years ago, we changed our education system. That's the first time we created Universal High School. We said everybody's going, we're not on farms anymore, we're kids are in factories, we're going to get Universal High School to educate our American workforce for this new industrial age. Well, now we're going through another revolution. It's not the industrial revolution, but the automation revolution. We're not losing our jobs to immigrants like the president says, we're losing them to robots. Jobs are getting automated out of existence. And we've got to change our education system to meet that demand. What does that mean? We need to invest much more in vocational school. You know, we have a new vocational school in my district in Massachusetts, and there are literally lines out the door. Kids are getting great jobs when they come out of vocational school, but we've got to make sure that every kid has the opportunity to go to vocational school if he or she wants to. And on top of that, we've got to make sure that when they come out of vocational school, they are respected for these important jobs. Who's tried to get a plumber lately? Plumbers are making really good money, and they're doing really good work, and they should be respected for that work. If you want to be a plumber, 
you should get just as much respect as if you want to be a computer programmer. We got to make sure our education system is meeting the demand for these jobs. And it's clearly not. Otherwise, it'd be a lot easier to get a plumber. So that's one of the changes that we need to make to evolve our education system to meet this new automated age. I would love for everybody to be able to go to college for free in America. That's a great goal. It's extremely expensive, but it's a great goal. But let's start with just making sure that kids get the education they need in high school. Free college is great for everybody who gets to college, but a quarter, one out of every four kids in America doesn't even graduate high school today. Let's start with them. Let's make sure that everybody gets a good high school education to go into a good career whether you want to go to college or not, and then we can talk about free college. Very well. Thank you. Thanks. Dan, thanks so much. Another social media question coming here. This is from Richard Fulford. How will the proposals of gun control actually stop criminals from owning and obtaining guns? Well, actually, there's very clear evidence that it works. And I know this is an argument um, um, from gun rights advocates that say, well, you know, if you just take away guns from law-abiding citizens, um, then criminals are still going to get guns. But there is a very clear cor correlation between states that have tougher gun laws and less gun violence. And I know that coming from Massachusetts, where we have some of the toughest gun laws in the country and the lowest incidence of gun violence. So the fact of the matter is that, yes, I mean, you can always find exceptions to the rule, but tougher gun laws help. And as someone who's actually had to use guns, someone who carried guns every single day for three years, someone who can say that guns actually saved my life, I understand how you talk about guns. And I am going to be a tough advocate for reasonable, rational gun reform in America. Now, this doesn't mean taking away guns from hunters up in New Hampshire. It doesn't mean taking away the Second Amendment. But it does mean doing basic things like saying, if you buy a gun at a gun show, just like if you buy it at a gun shop, you ought to have a background check. In the last Congress, I had the two most bipartisan bills on gun reform. One was to ban bump stocks, which would have lessened the massacre in, in Las Vegas. The NRA has already banned bump stocks from their own headquarters, folks. Okay? Like, this is not too radical. Now, my second gun bill, I admit, was more controversial. It was to prevent terrorists from getting guns. <laughs> this is simple stuff. This is reasonable stuff. These are things that the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats across the country agree on. It's a good example of why Congress is broken if we can't pass things that 85, 95% of America agrees on. That's the kind of gun reform that we need, and that's the gun kind of gun reform I will push as the next president. Before we get to Joan, one quick follow there. Can you settle sure. a point yeah. of contention right now in this debate? Democrats often speak of weapons of war on the yes. American streets. You've handled weapons of war. Is it intellectually honest to say that the kind of guns you were carrying in Iraq are widely available in the United States? Yes, absolutely, because they are. Um, I carried an M4 in Iraq. It is basically identify, uh, you know, it is basically the same rifle that was used in all these uh, massacres across the country. Now, technically, there are military-style weapons that can go on full auto, and the civilian versions can't. But you know what? You can modify that with a, simple kit, with a simple kit. And on top of that, one of the things, if you really want to get into it, that you learn in the Marines is it's more effective not to put your weapon on full auto. 
So the point is, with all this gun jargon aside, the point is that the weapons are essentially identical. And if you need an assault rifle to kill a deer, you need to go to shooting school, okay? You need to go to marksman school. You don't need an assault rifle to kill a deer. These are weapons of war. We shouldn't have them on our streets. And by the way, we outlaw all kinds of other weapons of war. I not only had a pistol and a rifle with me every single day in Iraq, I had two grenades on my chest. Every single day for three years, I walked around with two grenades. And I knew how to handle them. I never blew myself up. Now, how would you feel if I had two grenades just hanging out here tonight? <laughs> Probably not that great, right? We've made a decision as Americans that we don't need people walking around with grenades, even if they prove that they're pretty safe with them. Those are weapons of war that we say they don't have a place here at home. Grenades are great for fishing, but we don't allow grenades for fishing, okay? <laughs> so this is a totally reasonable thing to say that assault rifles, which are weapons of war as well, don't belong on our streets. 30-round magazines don't belong at home in America. Next question nice. comes from Joan Krimlisk. Okay, Sorry well. to keep you hanging there for so long. <laughs> Welcome. Um, I get very carried away about this stuff because, I mean, it, it is heartbreaking to go to high schools and have kids come up to you and say, I'm scared to go to school. I want to learn. I'm a good student, but I'm literally scared to show up at school because I think I might get shot. And that is happening in high schools across the country today. Okay, this is a different uh, topic. How would you accomplish your goals for clean and renewable energy? Great question. So I was one of the first signers on to the Green New Deal, but I signed on as a framework because I think this is important that we address climate change. But here's my rule. We address climate change while grow growing the economy. It shouldn't cost jobs. It shouldn't break the bank to address climate change because we should be the leaders on green jobs. Why are we buying all our solar panels, all our solar panels from China right now? You know, why is China becoming the world leader on green tech? We should be the leader on green tech. One of the first things I would do is I would start a, a national service program uh, along the my, on, uh, called the along the model of the uh, the program that Roosevelt held under the under the New Deal, where he had the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, we need a modern green corps that, rather than fix our national parks, although that's good and important work too, can go around and weatherize buildings, can make buildings more efficient, can help us save energy, can, can make coastlines more resilient, can help us deal with the immediate effects of climate change while giving young people an opportunity to serve their country. You know, we met the challenge of the 1930s with the Civilian Conservation Corps. We should meet the challenges of today by expanding national service with a green corps that will help kids get jobs. Investing in national service is a great example of an investment that improves our economy. You get more return than you spend. Those are the kinds of investments we need to meet, we need to make to meet the challenges of climate change. I want to make sure that my daughter has a planet without an expiration date to grow up in. Thanks. Thank you, Joan. A uh, social media question here from Russ Holmes. He asks, are you in favor of giving tax credits to companies who wish to invest in solar carports with provisions to plug in electric vehicles? I think it would be a huge catalyst for promoting EVs. Well, uh, as the owner of, a, of an EV, I own a Chevy Volt. Um, my wife and I do. We only have one car, but it's a Chevy Volt. 
Um, I think that sounds great. But the biggest thing we need to do is just make sure that regardless of whatever investment you're making to make this country a little bit greener, a little bit less carbon dependent, that you get, you, that it's, it's favored by our tax code, that you get incentivized to make those investments. You know, this is why we should have a tax on carbon. Now, a carbon tax is controversial. People don't like the idea of raising taxes. But done right, you can just incentivize people to spend money on things that actually are helpful for the environment. And that's exactly the kind of economic policy we should have. So whether or not, I mean, this is a very, very specific, I don't even, it's so specific, I don't remember the exact details, carport, solar, but. Tax um, breaks for carports so you can charge your car off. So I, look, I think that sounds great, but we need to think bigger. We need to make sure that um, w any kind of investments that we make to improve, to improve our economy, but also make it a more green economy, are incentivized by our tax system. Right now, our tax system gives tax breaks to oil companies. It gives tax breaks to gas companies. It gives tax breaks to companies that are literally making our environment worse. We need to flip that around. Next question comes from Jeannie Tucker of Concord. Hey, Jeannie, how are Good you? Good evening, Congressman. Uh, more than 173,000 Granite Staters care for older parents, spouses, children and adults with disabilities, and other loved ones, helping them live independently and in their homes and communities where they want to be. These family caregivers are the backbone of America's care system, yet they continue to face physical, emotional, and financial challenges and deserve better support. If elected, will you support this army of family caregivers, and if so, how? Absolutely, yes. So let me talk about how. First of all, let me share a little personal experience with this. Uh, my Uncle Andy had Down syndrome. When he was born in 1968, the doctors told my grandparents that he should go straight to an institution. They shouldn't even take him home. My grandparents said, no, we're going to take him home with his six brothers and sisters, one of whom was my mom, and make, them, make him a part of our family. And what I learned from growing up in a family with an uncle who had Down syndrome is that he immeasurably enriched our lives. It wasn't a burden to take care of him, although it was a lot of work for my grandmother and my grandfather while they were alive. The, but much more than that, he contributed to our lives. He made us better. And when he died, sadly, a few years ago, the church in Longmeadow, Massachusetts was overflowing with literally hundreds of friends that we didn't even know that he knew. He enriched this entire community. He was a bagger at Stop and Shop and he just basically knew everybody. So these are wonderful people who contribute so much to our community. He was also the first um, uh, intellectually disabled person to graduate from Longmeadow High School with a high school degree. So we need to support them. But I will say it was a lot of work for my grandmother and my grandfather who were his caretakers throughout his life. Now, when they died, he went to a group home and he had a wonderful life um, at, his, at his group home for the next five or 10 years. And, um, and we saw the work that the folks at the group home did to take care of, of my Uncle Andy and his friends. So there are a lot of people doing this work throughout the country. But let me share a shocking statistic. And this is actually an example um, of not just the sort of economic disparities in our system right now, but the gender disparities, because a lot of caregivers tend to be women. Male parking attendants get paid more per hour to watch cars 
than childcare workers on average get paid to watch children. Now, where are those priorities? Where are those priorities? So we've got to invest. We've got to invest in family caregivers. We've got to give tax incentives to make sure that they can do their jobs. Um, we've, got to, um, um, we've, got to, we've got to provide programs to support their work, the kind of social uh, work programs that supported um, my Uncle Andrew and his group home. And there's probably more that we need to do too. So I don't have all the answers, but I hope what I've conveyed to you is how important this is and how I, th and how I think um, you know, backwards the system is right now in terms of the respect and the basic pay that we give to people who do this work. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Jeannie. Another social media question coming in here from Benjamin Pelletier. He asks, do you support reform to our immigration system? If so, what would that look like in a Moulton administration? Absolutely, we need to reform our immigration system. Uh, you know, one of the things I did over the last two years is I went around the country supporting Democrats running in tough districts to take back the House, especially veterans. And of the 40 seats that we flipped to take back the House of Representatives, 21 of them, 21 out of 40, uh, were endorsed and supported by my Serve America organization. And one of the things that I did with these veterans, not just supporting their campaigns, but really helping them, um, you know, helping them, mentoring them and whatnot, is we took a bunch of them down to the border to understand the border crisis. Now, a bunch of congressional delegations went down to the border, and they usually do five hours in a press conference. We spent two days, and we spent two days on both sides of the border. We spent time in Juarez, Mexico, with a home of deported veterans. Think about that, deported veterans. That's a term that should not even exist. We talked to a United States Navy sailor who'd worked for 10 years proudly in the United States Navy. His parents are American citizens. His kids were American citizens. But he came to the United States when he was 16 years old and he just didn't get around to doing the paperwork while he was in the Navy. He admits it was a mistake. I mean, he should have just filled out the paperwork, but he just didn't get around to doing it. Now he got out, he had a little bit of a drinking problem and he, and he, and he got a DUI. He'll be the first to tell you that he should not have gotten a DUI. But he did his time and then when he was let out of prison, he was sent to a country that he never knew a proud U.S. Navy veteran who has a DUI like a lot of my colleagues in Congress, many of whom haven't served the country, and he's now stranded away from his entire family in Juarez, Mexico. That's an example of just how broken the system is. So when you go down there and you talk to people seeking asylum, when you talk to customs and border officials, when you talk to illegal immigrants, when you talk to legal immigrants, when you talk to ICE officials even, everybody says the system is broken. There's no one who says, oh, we just need to enforce existing laws, like we hear from some members of Congress. Everyone tells you the system is fundamentally broken. This commander-in-chief, Trump, is making it worse. He just pulled out aid from Central America, where a lot of these migrants are coming from. Do we have an issue with historic numbers of migrants from Central American countries coming to the southern border? Yes, we do. And we should be able to admit that as Democrats. But the plan to stop it is to send aid to the countries that are so lawless these people are fleeing for their lives. And we've done this before. We did it in Colombia. Plan Colombia, in the space of 15 years, turned a narco state into a tourist destination. 
Americans now go to Colombia for vacation. That's because we had effective foreign aid investments in Colombia, and we need to do the same in Central America. Trump is doing the exact opposite. This is a great example of where our national security affects our homeland security, affects an issue that everybody is talking about in politics right now. So we need to bring the country together, Democrats and Republicans, admit that yes, a country has borders and we need to have a strong border, and we need to staunch this migrant flow by actually investing in these Central American countries just like we did in Colombia. We also need to have a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, supported by over 80% of Americans, Democrats and Republicans alike. A pathway to citizenship for people who are part of our economy, part of our communities. People like that deported veteran who didn't get his paperwork done when he was in the Navy but should have just had an opportunity to get it done after he got out. This is common sense, reasonable reform that the majority of America agrees with and that's what I would pursue as president. Next question comes from Leonard Morrill. How are you? Very good. Good to see you. Thank you. The American people are looking for better paying jobs, better health care, lower prescription drug costs, less expensive education, and better retirement security. Is there any chance that Congress will address these issues under your administration? Well, I'm going to make sure we address these issues. And part of the advantage of having a little bit of experience in Congress is knowing a little bit about how Congress works and how you can bring Democrats and Republicans together, just as I've done to pass bipartisan bills. Uh, I was named the most effective freshman Democrat um, because I actually got things done. And I'd take that same spirit of getting things done to the White House. That means you have to work with both sides of the aisle. Now, it doesn't mean you work with every Republican. I mean, there are some Republicans who, someone said to me once, how do you work with Ted Cruz? And, and, and here's the answer. You, you don't work with Ted Cruz. You find a Republican who's easy to work with, okay? <laughs> You've got to work with Republicans, though, to get some of these things done and to get them done in a bipartisan way so that they'll actually be fixed for the long term and they won't just be repealed um, when power switches hands. So that spirit of getting things done that I've exercised in Congress will be exactly the same spirit of leadership that I bring to the White House. It means making some compromises sometimes, never compromising our values but saying to the American people, it's more important to get things done for you than to win this political fight in Washington. Thank you. Thanks. Next question is from social media. It comes from Bob Healy. He says, I'm tired of hearing that wasteful spending and congressional pet projects are a drop in the bucket of the federal budget. They all add up. What, what are we going to do to eliminate these foolish and unnecessary projects? And what are your plans to actually reduce the $22 trillion budget deficit? Well, first of all, let's just be clear. We have the largest budget deficit in American history under President Trump. The largest deficit in American history. For too long, Republicans have said, oh, we're the party of fiscal responsibility. Nope. We need to take back the mantle of leadership on the economy as Democrats. We need to say, we can run the economy too. We know how to balance a checkbook, and we know how to reduce the federal deficit. Actually, if you look at a chart... I don't have one here tonight, but consistently over time, the deficit has gone down under Democratic presidents, and it's gone up under Republican presidents. So we're going to end this idea that Republicans are the party of fiscal responsibility because it's Democrats that have been fiscally, fiscally responsible. The thing that's made, that's given us, the single thing, more than anything else, that's given us the biggest deficit in American history is Trump's tax cut that largely went to corporations and the rich. One of the first things I would do is rescind that tax cut. 
I want to make taxes fair. That means that if you're making money off investments, you're paying the same rates as people who are making money off of hard work every single day. That's not the case in today's economy. Right? This is why Warren Buffett famously says he pays lower taxes than his secretary. Okay, that's wrong. I agree with Warren Buffett. The rates should be fair and simple so that everybody pays their fair share. That will do a lot to reduce the federal budget deficit. Now, with regards to pet projects in Congress, I agree. We shouldn't have pet projects in Congress. And although they are a small part of the budget, they do add up. Sure, that's a good point. But just ending those projects is not going to do as much to reduce the deficit as the plan that I just outlined to make the tax system more fair. We've got time for about one more question here. All You've right. had so many compelling stories of your service. I'm just curious, when you think of the Battle of Najaf, what is the image that comes to your mind? You know, I, I try to tell stories about my service because I wouldn't be here without that experience and because I want people to know about the incredible sacrifices that are made by our men and women in uniform. I don't like to tell war stories, though. So there's a lot of parts of Najaf that, you know, just kind of remain in here, and, and, uh, and I'm not going to share. But there's a picture in my office of a bunch of my Marines on the front page of the New York Times in early August 2004. And when you look into their eyes, I think you see the best of America. Even in the midst of a war that we dis many of us disagreed with, not all of us, but many of us disagreed with, they were making a difference every single day. They were there to make an imperfect war better. They were there fighting for our country and our freedom so that their friends and family didn't have to go in their places. And when you look into their eyes, you see how unbelievably young they are. I'm going to talk a lot about patriotism in this campaign, what patriotism really means. I'm going to talk about strengthening our national security and taking on Donald Trump as commander-in-chief and the job he's doing. But most of all, this will be a campaign anchored in the idea, the principle of service of believing in America so much that you want to serve this country and make it better. I was inspired by the young Marines that I served with in Najaf and elsewhere in Iraq to run, for to run for Congress, to try to prevent what got us into Iraq from happening again. There was a day in 2004 in Najaf when a young Marine in my platoon said, you know, sir, you ought to run for Congress someday so that this stuff doesn't happen again. Now, he used a Marine term for stuff, but you get what I mean. <laughs> I saw a lot of bad things in Iraq, but the image that I remember is the image of those young Marines serving their country, making this country a little bit better, being proud patriots, proud of their country, even in the midst of an uncertain time. And so for all the tragedy of Iraq, the image that I have is one of inspiration from these young Marines serving their country. 
Congressman Seth Moulton, thank Thanks. you for joining us for a conversation with a candidate. We appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.